there are two verses of Scripture I'd like for you to look at. One is Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13. We'll brief that one. And then we'll go to Jeremiah chapter 12. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13 in Jeremiah chapter 12. You know, the first message of each year, there's a sort of pressure that's put on you as a preacher to approach a new year with some kind of forecast, some kind of prophetic insight as to what's going to happen this year. We've never gotten that right. But it seems like every year you want to point people to a new year and inspire them to live a little better. And, you know, I think we do that just about every year. I'm not taken away from that, but this is another new year in our life and another year, maybe the last year. Who knows? The Lord may come this year. I pray that he does. It would be wonderful to get out of here and go home. The world more and more, at least to me, is not such a pleasant place as when I was a child I thought it would be. The big American dream is flawed by so much interference anymore. And there's so much ugliness and unrighteousness around it. As a Christian, I'm saying this. And there's so many things around that you cannot escape seeing it. You cannot escape hearing about it. You cannot escape on occasion thinking about it. And you know that at some point, as God has said, he's going to judge all of this. That you cannot sin without consequences. You can't. And because a lot of people sin and get by with it, or like in Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11, it says, because the sentence is not carried out speedily against evil work, the hearts of men are inclined to just think it's okay. And more and more, people are conditioned to sin. We're introduced to it more and more in our society from the TV and magazines and, and speech and talk. And bad words or vulgar words are so common now. They used to be, you'd blush when you hear them. Now it's just very common. Women cuss as bad as men. And the dress today leaves nothing to the imagination. And there is this upheaval of immorality and ugliness. God's going to judge it. It doesn't look like it because it gets worse, but it's just filling up its cup until the time that God's wrath comes. So for lack of a better title this morning, I want to just title this. This is not a good title. The Coming War. I'm just going to call it that. Another better title would be Dress Blues or Fatigues. One of those two. But I'll title what I have here before me, The Coming War. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. It may not be the day you're in, but there is a day that is coming. Or maybe it refers to a day of attack by the enemy that he's been talking about. Let's just stay with where we are with society and the world in general. Taking to you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to not fall, to not weaken, give up, quit, languish, and depart. Fall back and quit. 
pray that that doesn't happen because the evil day is going to put a lot of pressure on your convictions and your beliefs. And what you think you stand on right now, you may have to find out when the war begins, when the real judgment comes. Now, I say that because of our next verse in Jeremiah chapter 12 and the fifth verse. This verse was a rebuke from God to Jeremiah, and we'll get to reasons why next. But he said this, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied thee, how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein you trusted, they wearied thee, then how will you do in the swelling of the Jordan? Now, I would imagine a lot of you don't know what the last part means, and we'll get to that in a moment. But Jeremiah had a complaint, like what I just said. He looked around, and he could see as a godly man, a man who was under more pressure than maybe any single human being in Israel's history. He had no friends, no support, nobody for him. Everybody was against him. I mean everybody. Very few people had any admiration at all for Jeremiah. Had no converts. Nobody would follow him. But he had a message. He had the word of God directly from God given to him for a nation that was falling into wickedness and greater wickedness. They were bad. They were getting worse. Jeremiah was one of the last prophets before the invasion by Nebuchadnezzar's army and the captivity and the 70 years that followed after that. And Jeremiah's life under one good king, Josiah, but all the others, all of his sons and grandsons were all bad. They were all wicked, evil, and selfish. And under those kings who hated Jeremiah's word, just like the world today hates your word if you say what God said, they do. And Christians do too. Religious people don't like the truth. And that does affect us because it's a kind of resistance that we shouldn't have. And Jeremiah was overwhelmed by it. And God said, Jeremiah, if you've run with footmen, because that's all you're experiencing now, if you've run with footmen and they have wearied you, how will you contend with horses? The worst part's coming. Right now is not the worst part. This is a prelude to it. This is the time of peace in a land where you know you're safe. What are you going to do when the horses come? When the banks of the Jordan overflow, when the wild animals that live in the jungle, when they come out, and then real danger comes, what are you going to do then, Jeremiah? If what's going on right now is defeating you, what will you do when it gets bad? I don't think he'd ever imagined that it's going to get worse than it was. Because, again, he was a man who had nothing. He had nothing. He was in jail. They wouldn't feed him. They threw him in pits. They locked him up. They tried their best to kill him, but they couldn't. And they couldn't kill him because it wasn't his time to go. So what was all of this rebuke about? Well, let's go back to the first four verses. And let's remember this, that what God said to Jeremiah was a message for Jeremiah and the day that he was in. It is also a message for us. Now, we're not Jeremiah. We're not Israel. But the same conditions that were in Jeremiah's day are the same conditions that are today. Very little has changed because the devil never changes. The work that the devil does has been the same from the beginning of time. 
Listen, there has always been wickedness and immorality. There's never a day it wasn't. There's always been prevalent in every age. But today it's so amplified by the media. We're so much, much more as a world aware of it now and getting used to it. Just like we're getting used to gas prices. Sure you are. They run it up to $3 and then you go, oh, and then they drop it down to $270. Oh, boy, $270. $270. How about a dollar? But yet they keep jumping it up and dropping it back and then jumping it up a little bit more and dropping it back. Then jumping it up a little bit more and dropping it back. And when it drops back 10 cents, we go, oh, boy, happy days are here again. Because it's one of the ways the world's system works. It conditions men who are not thinking people and whose mind is connected to the world and their hopes and dreams are in the world. It conditions you to follow its trends and its ways. God rescues you from the world so that you no longer have your dependence on those systems of men or whatever happens in the world because you have a greater hope. Your hope doesn't rest in the price of oil, but in the promise of God. And so this is what's going on with him here. Now, verse 1. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee in thy judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are all they happy that deal treacherously? Why are all these things going on, Lord? What's happening? Verse 2, you planted these people? You caused them to grow? I'm talking about God's people here. We're not talking about ugly beer drinkers out in the world, except for the few that remain in the church. But we're talking about God's people. He called them to be his people. And then he says, look at them, Lord. They're treacherous. They're treacherous people. Let me ask you all a question. Is it possible for institutional Christians to be treacherous? Is it possible for church members who are good church members to be treacherous? That depends on how you define treacherous. I know you can't spell it, but it just depends on how you define it. It means unfaithful for one thing. It means deceitful. Misleading. Not exactly what you thought it was. Another word, it has to do with betraying people. Could that ever, ever be in a church? Well, let's go on because Jeremiah saw it. He realized that the ones that he was around had no clue to what God was like and what the influence that should have on you with each other. He didn't see it. I would say, time out, Lord. I know you're a God of judgment, and I know you're fair and righteous. I'm not questioning that. But, Lord, look at your people. Look how they're living with each other and in this world and how the world views them. They're treacherous. They're not faithful. And in verse 2, he said, but, Lord, and they're your people. You planted them. Yes, they have taken root, and they grow. They bring forth fruit. I go to the church and I listen to them. You are in their mouth. I mean, their mouth opens up and they sing wonderful songs. 
They give testimonies every week. And I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about the condition here that can be, that shouldn't be. They talk about Jesus. They talk about the Lord. They witness to other people. They have the appearance of being a sincere believer. And yet in their hearts, he says, the last part, yet you're not in their reigns. Reigns? Yeah. Reigns has, has to do with your innermost being. I think the word has to do with your kidneys, but I'm sure kidneys are not spiritual things. But because kidneys are lodged on the innermost part of your body, it's a word that has to do with your innermost being, or what is normally called your heart, the, where the real you is. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So that's what he's referring to spiritually here. He said, Lord, you're in their mouth. You're not in their hearts. You remember, if you go back one book to the left in Isaiah, Isaiah said that, I think it's in chapter 29 and verse 13. Somebody said, you refer to that a lot. I will refer to it a lot more. You know what, as a preacher, in a similar way with Jeremiah, I can see more and more clearly the desperate state of religious people, Christian people. And I dearly, 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 dearly don't want you to think that any of that's okay. If we had to repeat the thing, the sermon, every week, every week, and every week, and every week, eventually you'll see it. But there is a desperateness in religion today, in Christianity. The trend is not towards God, it's away from God. Listen at this, verse 13. Isaiah 29 and verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, which is a good thing. Isn't that good? Why would anybody complain about that? God said they do that, but they have removed their heart far from me and their reverence Respect and fear towards me is taught by the way man sees it, by the precepts of men. That is, they don't go by what the book says. They go by what some clever, educated, smooth-talking man said. There's nothing wrong with being educated. There's nothing wrong with being clever in life. And there's certainly nothing wrong with being a smooth talker. It's just, when all of that's used of the devil, it distorts the whole picture of Christianity. Men sitting in seats like you sitting this morning get the wrong view of what God is like. We'd like to just have every week be told that God is somebody that's always good and always fair and just does good things all the time. And he doesn't answer our questions about why bad things happen to good people. He doesn't want to talk about that. We just like a picture of God that makes us comfortable because that's one of the trends in this hour to make people comfortable and make people happy. And the preacher knows if he can make you comfortable and make you happy, you'll keep coming back. And so you avoid anything that deals with human nature and things that need to change in our lives and your weaknesses and your flaws. And we tend to let those things go because, you know, we're good. God knows we're just flesh and he knows we can't really be perfect and he knows. And, he, and so that's an excuse for living the way the world lives. That's why we indulge in it and partake of it. That's what Isaiah said. These people are saying the right things, Lord. They're singing the right songs. But they don't mean it. That's where the treachery comes in. They're not faithful to what they say. They're not faithful to what they hear. 
They complained about what they hear. When Jeremiah spoke, the people complained. They didn't want to hear it. He said, that's treacherous. And then in verse 3, Jeremiah's complaint again. He said, but thou, O Lord, you know me. You have sent me, and you've tested my heart toward thee. Pull them down like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Now, I'm not saying that Jeremiah said, they're not like me, so therefore deal with them, because that's been a problem in Christianity for years. People aren't like us. We go to other meetings and hear other people and watch other people do things, and we criticize them because they don't do it our way. But that's not what he's saying here. Jeremiah is probably referring to the fact that he has lived as tight a life and as narrow a life and as convicted a life as a mortal man could live. He suffered the loss of everything just to be a mouthpiece for God. He's been ostracized. You can't spell that either, but he's been ostracized and put down, thrown in prison and treated unrighteously and unfairly because he had the word of God in his mouth. And he knew that God who searches hearts and tests hearts, and when he does, he knows that God who tries the heart, he knows the condition of people's lives. And Jeremiah says, and yet you're not doing anything about it. Look at all the evil that's in the world and even in the church and the bad people that are doing bad things to innocent babies and children and kids. I know you're righteous. Lord. I would never do that. We would never do that. But you're letting that happen. Lord, do something. Do something about it, Lord. He said, it's not fair. You ever heard that or ever said that? He said, Lord, you know me. You know I'm not like that. And yet look at all the trouble I've gone through. Look at all the difficulty that I've had. Lord, look at these people. They live just the opposite. And they're like the first 12 verses of Psalm 73. Lord, they are doing great. They die well. They're wicked. They're evil. They're hateful. They're loathsome. They share nothing about what belongs to them with God's people or God's work. They're covetous and they're greedy. And yet look at them. They die well. They live in the best houses, all the refinery. They've got it all. He said, Lord, I'm living in a mud hole. I'm living in a dungeon. I was down in a hole. They threw me in the prison. They wouldn't feed me. And all because I've got your word in my mouth. Would you ever be discouraged if you were Jeremiah? You would if you weren't anointed. Put your finger right here in chapter 12 and look in chapter 20. Let me call your attention to something. In chapter 20, verse 7, he said, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. But you're stronger than I am, and you have prevailed. I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spoke, I've cried out. When I began preaching, I preached crying out. Your word just exploded out of me. I cried out. I cried violence and spoil because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. I was hated and rejected because 
of your word. That's why I was rejected. If I had not said the things you gave me to say, I would have had friends. I would have had a nice, pleasant life, and maybe I would have had this or had that. But no, the words you gave to me had such force inside of me that when I began to speak it, it just come out. And everybody has hated me for it. Look at the condition I'm in. Everybody's hated me for it. Verse 9, then I said, all right, I'm not going to make mention of him nor speak anymore in his name. But now this is the difference between those that are called to preach and those who with that call have an anointing to do it and those who would like to do it but can't. I've met a thousand men in my life, at least 50, who wanted to preach, who could preach, but who weren't called or anointed to preach. They could put words together, make a nice sermon, but there wasn't anything to it. And it's not like a man's talent makes one man better preacher than another man or better able to do what he's doing than another man. It's all in the anointing. It's all in the call of God, the direction he sends you, and the anointing he gives you to do that. Nobody else can do it without that. But he said, Lord, I'm not going to preach anymore. But what does it say? But his word was in my heart like a burning fire. There was nothing else in life I could do that superseded this. Even when I was mad and angry and overwhelmed, I sat in a corner. I still wanted to let that word go. Even if there's only 10 people in my church, I've got this fire to preach. I've got to let this go. As he said, your word was like a burning fire in my heart, shut up in my bones, and I was weary with holding it in with forbearing, and I could not stay. I had to let it go. And every time he'd let it go, he'd get hammered again. But he just kept doing it because that's the difference between those that are singled out like, remember the Apostle Paul, when God saved him, he said, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He's a chosen vessel, mine in Acts. He's a chosen vessel, and I'm going to show him what great things that Paul's going to suffer for my name's sake. From being shipwrecked, a snake bit, thrown out of town, stoned, belittled, humiliated. He went through that his whole life, but he never quit. He never gave up on his ministry or his call because it was an anointing to do that. And so back to Jeremiah 12. So Jeremiah is complaining here about all of these kind of things. And verse 4, this is the reason why all these bad things happen to anybody. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither for the wickedness of them that dwell there. Let me ask you a question just on that verse. Why does the land mourn and the plants and the natural way it was meant to grow? Why are things so restricted not doing well on this earth? Oh, it's pesticides, insects. No, no, no. That's part of it probably. But why is this earth, this globe, this rotating ball that we're on, why does it not do well? Men, sin. It's because of man. It was not made to be flawed like man has flawed it with tearing it up and cutting it down and abusing it. I went through McDonald's the other day, and Bonnie and I, and I got our usual something for her and something for me to drink. 
And instead of just handing me two little cups, which I'm going to throw away, they handed me two little cups on a perfectly good little tray. I remember taking those two drinks out and set them in the cup holder in the car and driving around the corner and throwing that thing away. And I think, what a waste. Would you agree? Now, I'm not a wacko. You know, even God says, don't cut down good trees. Don't cut down a living tree to make a fire when there's a dead one around. It's just some things that in respect for what God has created, we should have. There is. If you shoot an animal, you should roast it or eat it unless the thing was a varmint. Now, that's not scriptural. I mean, the varmint part. (laughs) God gave us animals for food. And the devil has tried to corrupt that ever since by either corrupting the animal, the way they raise them or what they feed them, or by telling people that it's wrong to eat meat. That's one of the signs of the last days. If it was wrong to eat it, God would have said, thou shalt only look at it, but thou shalt not eat it. But these are the last days in which things get twisted and distorted. It's a time and an age of confusion. It really is because it's been like that. It's happening everywhere in the church in the world, and it's also a day before God's judgment. And these are things that have been predicted and forecast are going to come to pass, forbidding to eat meats, forbidding to marry, immorality, men with men, women with These are things that signify the last days. It's even been suggested in the days of Noah or then Sodom and Gomorrah that men marrying men and women marrying women was the cause of the great judgment. I don't know, but, you know, we see so much of it. It's prated so much that you're getting used to it. You're getting used to it. You know, I grew up at the right time. I grew up at the right time because, you know, there was a time, and I don't mean putting anybody else down, but there was a time when values were instilled in you. Respect for authority and respect for teachers and respect for things were instilled in you, and you got spanked if you did not do right. And you addressed adults right, you held doors for people, you were kind and gentle towards people, or you got whacked. I said to somebody the other day, Well, thank you. I said, No problem. I thought, I didn't say thank you because it was a problem. I said, thank you for your service. I didn't say this. I'm not thanking you because, wow, look what you did. No problem. There was a time you say thank you and people would say you're welcome. But I don't think that people understand that anymore. All I'm saying about that, this is not the sermon, but it's just times are changing and not necessarily for good. Even God is thrown in this equation because now they make jokes about God. People belittle God. They don't want anything to do with God, even politically now. They want to get God out of the courthouse. They want to get God out of the schools. They want to get God off the money. It's not like we respect him as a nation. We just acknowledge him that he exists, and we want his name somewhere. But the world is growing stronger and more vocal about this getting rid of God. It's the last days. The Bible says in the last days, one of the signs is people will be haters of God. It's happening. Unrighteous, unruly. Oh, these are the last days and God is going to judge all of this. But this is what sin does. Sin affects everything. It affects your garden. It affects the world. It affects everything. Just for a moment, turn to the most difficult section in Romans 8. 
Romans 8. Then we'll come back to Jeremiah 12. But look in Romans 8. Because before this last great judgment comes, Romans, Paul addresses by the Spirit one of the problems that's going to happen or the problems that's going to exist with nature. Nature. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed where? What's going to be revealed in us? Glory. Now, glory has to do with God, doesn't it? All right, then something of God's being, presence, I want to say effulgence, but that's, again, that's an unspellable word, but that which is of God is going to be revealed in somebody. It's going to be manifested in somebody. God doing a work in you is going to result in this. Are you with me? In other words, something is going to come forth. What does that have to do with nature? Hold on. Verse 19. Any commentator will tell you that these are difficult passages to get right. A lot of different views of exactly what's mentioned here, whether you're talking about a person or your creature or creation. The word creature here in verse 19 is the Greek word for creation. And some think it's referring to us as individuals. Some say the created order of things, nature. And I'm going to go with that, not because I know more than they do, but this is how it's shown to me. In verse 19, for the earnest expectation of creation waiteth for this. What is creation waiting for? The manifestation of God's sons. Now, that, that's not exclusively men, but it's a company. It's a group. It's a group of men unlike those with them in a group. It's like you have the church, which alone has any acknowledgement of God. So we're not talking about the world here. Inside the church, it seems like there are those within the church who are willing to live as God shows it to them and unwilling to conform to the ways of this world. They are so narrow, in fact, that he says, if those around them have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it, they won't even fellowship with them. Then they are called legalistic and rude and overbearing and cultish. That's what they say. All because of 2 Corinthians 16. What fellowship does light have with darkness? So within the greater whole of what is called the church, there is within that church, it appears, a body of sincere, developing saints that God is doing a special work in in these last days. And the Bible says that creation groans and travails until the day that they come forth. Now, again, there's been doctrines made out of this. The latter rain in the 1940s came out with a doctrine called the manifested sons. They had a lot of things right, but they went a little bit too far with it. But just bear with me in verse 21. Because the creation itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, your Bible says that when these manifested sons or these sons are manifested into the world, 
it will be a time in which things will change. There will be a liberty and a freedom. Some say this is heaven. There will be a time of liberty and freedom not yet known, and creation will benefit from it too because it will be delivered from its corruption. Do you see what I'm saying in verse 21? That creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Thorns and briars. Why did thorns and briars come to the, in the first place? Sin. Droughts. Conditions in the world. Bugs, worms, and things that destroy crops. It's because of sin. Say, so who's sin? Just try, It's sin. Sin is a door that gave the devil the right to come in and do it. He can't just do it anytime he wants to. If the devil could do it anytime he wants to, there wouldn't be any crops. Just like the thief comes to kill. If the devil could kill when he wanted to, it wouldn't be any of us here. But he's limited because God is in control. But there comes a point in which God can give you over to your corruptness, and then things can happen that shouldn't happen, but they will happen. And we can't figure it out, but we're getting a foretaste of it here as to why things do happen and why things have happened to this earth. It's because of man's sin. But there comes a day in which those who are going to bring the end, they're going to come to the end with this, they're going to be, as he said, manifested. They're called in, at the end of verse 21, children of God instead of sons of God. So it includes all of us, men and women, young people too. He said, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Even this earth experiences this. You say, how can that be? Well, you know, the stars and the sun and the moon can cry out. They can sing. Jesus said stones could cry out if he told them to. God made the earth wonderfully, and he didn't define all of its mysteries to us yet. He didn't have to. But he is in such control of the earth that, you know, the earth is feeling the weight and the brunt and the effect of man's sin. But there will come a day, it will end, and not only they, that is the creation, but ourselves also, making the distinction in verse 22 from the creation, verse 23, to man. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. My spirit was made new instantly. I was made alive unto God in what is called my spirit instantly. I received a new spirit and a new heart. My soul is in the process of renewal. Like Psalm 23 said, he restores my soul. The way I live in the meantime in this restoration process is by faith. As 1 Peter writes, we receive the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And at the appearing of the Lord and our being caught up to meet him and so forth, we will get a new body. And with that new body, we will come back to this earth when he comes back. See, I believe in the rapture of these overcomers. Because when these are brought forth, they're going to be gone. They're going to go up to meet the Lord. Now, there's probably a whole lot more here than has been revealed. God will show us as we go through life what we're going to do and how this is going to work. But I want you to go back to Jeremiah 12. I just wanted to point out to you in Romans chapter 8 that even all of creation, all of creation travails and so forth. It does. It hurts too. 
Now, back in Jeremiah 12 again and verse 4, let me read something that was said in another translation. How long will our land be dry and the grass in every field be withered? Animals and birds are dying because of the wickedness of our people. People who say God doesn't see what we're doing. God doesn't seem to care. He's not watching. Maybe there is no God. Another translation says they even brag God can't see the sins we commit because more and more people question God. Out of the big institutions of great philosophical institutions, the Ivy League schools, and they put that name, you know, a professor at Harvard or a professor at Yale or Brown or Cornell or Penn. One of these big time professors, you know, as a studious man, you know, he began to doubt whether there really is a Noah's Ark or even a God. And people just seem to fall before such intellectual prowess. To think, well, if he doesn't think there's a God, there must not be one. And the more you can take God out of a man's life, the more you take guilt out of a man's life. If you can get rid of guilt and you can sin with impunity, you can just sin. Get those Ten Commandments out of my way. I don't want to think about God. I got a hot date tonight, and I'm going to a smooth bar, and I don't want to be thinking about the Ten Commandments. I don't want to go to any church that puts restraints on my passions. And they're getting it. This dead and dying church today, this living dead church, dead in its deeds, dead in its attitudes, dead in its ways, has a seat, a comfortable seat for whoever wants to come. We wish you would do better. We want you to do better. But, you know, if you can't, God knows you're just flesh, and you can't do much about that. But not only did he say in Jeremiah 4 that the world is affected, he also said the church is affected. We're affected by sin. Look what it's done to us. It's made us angry with each other, critical, we backbite, we bear tales, we tell stories, we point fingers. We don't speak to people, we spread rumors about each other. We say mouthy things we should not say, even though we've been taught an amen that we shouldn't do that. We carouse, we get involved in immorality, whether it's porno or the lady next door, and go to church like nothing ever happened. God didn't see it. And you get so used to doing that that you become wicked to the core all the way through. God says we're called to be soldiers. Isn't that right? We're supposed to be fighters, not each other. We have a common enemy called the devil. This is the other title I had, dress blues or fatigues. See, every soldier has two uniforms. I've already talked to a couple soldiers, and I got this right. Every soldier has two uniforms, one for looking good and one for what you're in the army for, to defend the country. The dress blues are quite impressive. I think they are. I think you could put on your best Hickey Freeman suit and your latest whatever, and I don't think you could look better than some military person in the stuff that they have. 
they have the dress blues and you got the fatigues. You ever see somebody dressed up on their military vest? I saw a picture the other night. I saw Nathan and Aaron. They were dressed up and pretty. I mean, just pretty. And Papa was in there too with them, you know. The point of it is that it's a really good-looking human being. I don't know what you agree with and what you think about it, but I mean, from the appearance of it, it looks good. I like to look at that and think, you know, that's it's a good representation of where I live in America. You know, when they do their other things at the funerals, you see the presidents and you see these military guys. I don't know how they can do that that long, but they stand there and perfect. I mean, look perfect. Their shoes are so shiny. You can see your face. You can look and say, how you doing, brother? Oh, a lot of time is spent doing all of this. How many of you know that none of that would be of any value in a foxhole? Can you imagine running in a foxhole with your dress blues on and, and your white pants or your striped blue pants and the hat and all that with a weapon in your arm and getting shot at? If it was me, I'd be saying, I'd rather go march back at home in my pretty dress blues. I don't like these fatigues because this is what you're all about. This is when you're in a foxhole. This is where they're shooting at you and you're shooting back. Now, you either want to cut and run or you're going to do like you've been trained. If you've been trained right, you stay there. Whatever you want to believe about, that's fine. But I think a lot of folks in the church today like to dress blues Christianity. We want to acknowledge there's an enemy out there that we need to deal with. We know God will take care of him. In the meantime, he wants us to have smooth sailing. We want comfortable, non-challenging Christianity so that we can just look good all the time. Let's build us something so we can look good. Let's try to impress people how good we look. Make them feel good about what we represent. I mean, nobody's going to go find you in a foxhole with a bunch of dirty fatigues on and somebody's blood on your uniform or on your clothes and, and admire that. But what good is looking good if you can't fight? If you're not going to fight the good fight of faith as a Christian, you're looking good as nothing but, it's like he said to the Pharisees, outwardly you appear what? Beautiful to men. He said, outwardly you appear beautiful, but inwardly you're pretty cheap. In fact, you're full of dead men's bones because what's on the inside of you in your heart and your mind is dead. You outwardly, with your mouth, acknowledge God and you agree to the things the Bible says, but inwardly you have no heart for it and you won't live it. If that's the condition in your heart, when the enemy comes in like a flood, you will run. You will flee. You'll get shot in the back or the heels because you will run. Because if it's only a show and then the war begins... You'll run. You'll cut and run because it's not worth dying for. And that is the attitude that people have who are willing to die. In Christianity, if we won't fight, we'll run. We may be dressed right. We may be look right. We may have each other's approval. But when the battle begins, when the war starts and starts hurting, and we start groaning, we start 
suffering that God is allowing us to go through this in the final phases of his preparation for bringing forth his glory, we're going to give up and quit and run by. We'll never make it. It'll only prove that from the very beginning, you didn't have a heart for it when you started. You liked the pomp and circumstance. You liked all the glory of the church and the meaning of moralness. But when the bullets start flying, you're going to give up and quit. You're going to run. You're going to tuck your tail and run. So-called Christian soldiers don't like fatigues because they're designed to fight in. They make you comfortable fighting. You're not restrained and restricted. You don't mind getting your fighting clothes dirty because that's what they're for. But if you're afraid to fight, if you dread the coming problems, and they may be here well this year, I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But if you're not willing to fight, then all you're sitting in here and all the years you think you've been a Christian accomplish nothing. If you run at the last, you had nothing in the beginning. I'll say it again. If you run at the last, you had nothing at the beginning. Therefore, let me ask you a question. Is it not my responsibility? <laughs> now, hold on. Is it not my responsibility as your drill sergeant to drill you with truth? I can't make you fight. I can't make you stand your ground and resist the devil. I can't make it, but I can tell you, you should tell you where it says it and tell you how. But if that's not in your heart, it won't work. And if you're a dress blues person, let me read you something. Put your finger in Jeremiah again and go to Revelation. Let's go all the way to the back door. Revelation chapter 3. If you are a dress blues Christian and you're not a fatigued Christian, Verse 14, and to the angel, the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans, these things saith the Lord, the amen, the faithful and true, and so forth. Verse 15, I know your works. I know that you're neither hot nor cold. You haven't abandoned God. You haven't forsaken God or his word. You read his word every Sunday. Your preacher preaches about something in the Bible. You have all kinds of meetings and departments where you try to do things and be helpful to people. That's good. That's nothing wrong with that. But the purpose of Christianity is not just affecting the world in some way. The purpose in Christianity is to bring forth God's glory in you. Are you here? What do we have without it? What a lot of people are going to appeal to is all the things they did. Lord, I did this, I did this, I did this. We cannot brag about bringing forth his glory because only God can do that. That's the work of God in you. And you've got to yield to that even though it doesn't look like it's working. And they're just groaning and travailing. It doesn't look like it's fair out there. But you've got to hold fast and endure to the end. And he said, I know your works. I know that you're neither hot nor cold. I would that you were cold or hot, God said. If you were hot, you could be admired. If you were cold, you could get convicted. But you're in that middle zone where 
you think you're all right because, because, this is right now today in the church in America, you think you're all right because you can look at the things you are doing. Look at what we are doing. It's all about money. Verse 17, because you say, I am rich, I am increased with goods, I don't need anything. That's the American dream, isn't it? The big house, beautiful children, money in the bank, trip somewhere every year, two or three times a year, out of debt. I mean, isn't that the American dream? I have it all. And God says, and yet in that state of your busy busyness, your busy Christianity, in the state of all of that, he said, you don't know. Look at these three things. He said, you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. That is, you are shameful in the eyes of God. Your nakedness is exposed. You're blind because you cannot see what is going on. And you're poor because spiritually you're on empty. You got nothing from God to commend to you, to God. There's nothing there. And you don't know that. Because God is not in the equation. It's look at what we have done. Look how busy we are and how we get along. And look at all that we have done. Hallelujah for us. He said, you are wretched. Busy church. Probably a big one. I don't know. Maybe a little one. But you're wretched. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind and you're naked. Would they be insulted by that? Or could we say that with such an attitude in a church, there is disgust with God? Would there be disgust? That's a strong word. Could God be disgusted? He certainly could. He certainly could. But he said in that next verse, so familiar to so many people, he said, you are lukewarm. You are lukewarm. Lukewarm. You're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm. Have you ever drank lukewarm coffee? Maybe some of you like lukewarm coffee. I saw some friend of mine the other day get a cup of coffee and put, I think, four or five creams in it. Why don't you just get a cup of cream and pour some coffee in it? Well, that's your business. You know, I can't tell how to drink his coffee, but the old cold cream, the more you put in there, the warmer your coffee gets. Well, warm coffee is not fit to drink, in my opinion. It's got to be so hot that you have to go, your first sip has to be, I don't like pain, but that's the way you should drink coffee. (laughs) Here's the point. Lukewarm is some tepid, halfway cool, warm, you're not exactly spiritually dead, but you're certainly not spiritually alive. You're sort of okay with yourself. I think a lot of Christianity is there today. Back to Jeremiah chapter 12 again. In verse 5, he said, Jeremiah, if you have run with footmen and they have wearied you, weary means weary. They've just gotten you where you're ready to lay down and quit. Now, what's he talking about now? What are footmen? They're conditions you see in the world as it was at the moment. 
if this is tearing you up and holding you down from continuing to go forth with God, if you're seeing all the decrepit condition in the world and you're drawing back because of that, Jeremiah, he said, is a rebuke. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you fall down, how will you do in the jungle of the Jordan when the banks overflow? Again, in the harvest season, the rains would come and the waters would swell over the banks of the Jordan. I think that's the way it was when Joshua entered in. I mean, they were overflowing because they stepped right to it and the Jordan opened up. Well, on the banks and the bushes and the little jungle tangle along the river, as commentators tell it, was where the wild animals found their haven of rest. They could be exposed out in the open, so they stayed in these jungles. Now, when the floods came and they uncomfortable in those jungles, they ran these lions out in the street. They were out in the open. So it's no longer you just walking casually to your neighbor's house down the road because now there are lions out here. Your life is in peril every day, and I think that's what we're looking at now. Is there a country that has as much peace and safety right now as America? I don't know of any other place. I felt very secure when I was in Israel because it was a no-nonsense country. They won't tolerate stuff like we will. But America, America is a safe place. If we can't handle the Christian life here now, we think it's so hard, it's so tough, I just can't say, it's so hard to live like that, I can't give up. If you're like that now, and then big trouble comes, what are you going to do? What are we going to do? Now, it's worth thinking about. Because Christians today live like it's going to be happy, go whatever, the rest of our lives here in America, the home of the free and land of the brave, we're going to just going to do good all the time. But I'll guarantee you, God's going to judge America. We lead the world in sin. We lead the world in abortions. We probably lead the world in homosexual activity and approve of it. Probably. We lead the world in immorality and I'm sure violence. In the days of Noah, there were two outstanding things that brought judgment, violence, mistreatment of each other, and immorality. No respect for the opposite sex or lusting for pleasure. Money, any way you can get it, robbing, cheating, lying. We're told in 2 Timothy, what, 3, about these signs or these things will come about in the last days, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, haters of good, sarcastic, proud, haughty, look at me, I'm something. This is what you're going to see more and more in the world. You could not watch a football game or a basketball game without somebody paid $2 million a year to tackle somebody. When they tackle somebody, you'd think they invented the wheel. Of course, as a coach, you think, we're paying you $2 million to do that. Get back on the line. Yeah. <laughs> Quit acting like a fool out there. You got that the rest of the game to do. But notice me, look at me, admire me think about me, and you walk around real cocky. I'm bad. And yet when God comes, these people will melt. 
like marshmallows at the heat and the pressure that is coming. They'll run and cry. They'll cry like little babies. They'll whimper and cry because they're not near as tough as they thought they were. And I believe the only survivors are those who have encased within them this coming forth of God, his strength and his power and his might, who looses us from all of our fears, from all of our fears. And he's for us and not against us. Jeremiah, if running with the fighting men has made you tired, how will you be able to keep up with horses? And if in a land of peace you go in flight, what will become of you in the thick of the Jordan, the bushes and so forth? How will you folks sitting here this morning, wherever you are, whatever you do, what would you do if it got worse this year? What about financially? What if this economic tsunami falls, as everybody says, and everything is in question? What happens if all these problems come that people have been predicting are going to come? What will happen if another country struck us like one country or somebody did on what we call 9-11-01? What will happen? Will people panic? Will Christians fall apart? Will we begin to question God like Jeremiah did? Will we have to be rebuked as God did him? Or will we say we've been warned? God has told us that he will not tolerate this kind of lifestyle forever, and judgment has begun. But it'll begin at the church of God before it begins out there. It'll start with us. Judgment begins first at the house of God. Wicked and evil men and imposters shall wax worse and worse in the last days. Wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines in various places is only the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of inward groanings and loathsome conditions. That's just the beginning. A world at ease is going to be a world in turmoil. And the day is coming. What will we do? I encourage you to know two things, that God is in control. One, God is in control that he is faithful, and he will not allow his people to fail. Now, if you're one of them, take heart in that, but don't take that as though it's going to happen just because you said that. You make your calling in the election sure. In the midst of that, God does the surviving part. And the second thing is Jesus said, take no thought. Remember? Take no thought. Take no thought for your life. For your food, for tomorrow. Cast all your care over on the Lord, no matter what happens. And trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. A dear friend of mine did that with his life just recently. He wouldn't turn to the left or to the right, not to spare his life or anything else. If God didn't want to fix it, he'd let it die. And he did. And while people may complain about that, I would say before you complain too much, I ask you, where is the man? Is he with God? Yeah, but he could, well, you know, if he is, God's already told him. But he didn't die kicking and screaming and squalling and dreading tomorrow. He died with his face like flint, 
set before God. And remember what Luke wrote, and I'm close with this. He says, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. It's not going to be easy. Many will quit, but we don't have to. We don't have to. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, deliver us from fears, uncertainties, aggravations, indifference. Deliver us from everything that you must judge, for you will judge it. But we cannot bring these things into your kingdom. They're not allowed there. They will have to be left here. And in some cases, you'll have to judge your people to make them ready. Lord, we know that whom you love, you correct or you chasten. That you scourge every son that you receive. All of this is done in preparation for being suitable to live in your kingdom. Teach us that. Make us to know that and not dread the power and the effect of your word in our lives and the demand it makes on us. I ask you to bless these people here in this building now, this year. Bless all of those who call this their home, their church home. That you would bless us as we come in here. You would bless us as we go out of here. In what we hear as well as how we hear it. That the word that you prepare for these people would come from you. And that we would be loyal and faithful to say it. And then have the courage to live it. I pray in that way your blessing would rest upon this congregation of believers. That we will say in the end we have not lived in vain. That your word has made everything count. We are ready to be offered because we have kept the faith. May that be our testimony. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a higher place than I have ever been. There is a deeper well than I can comprehend. There is a greater love than I have ever known and it's here yes it's here Lord it's here before your throne there is a greater mercy than man
could e'er conceive. There is a stronger faith than we would dare believe. place of rest where we'll never feel alone and it's here yes it's here Lord it's here before your throne so I bow down before you and cry holy. Lord, I bow at your feet and praise your name. I am bathed in the light of your glory. And it's here. Yes, it's here, Lord, it's here, before your throne. There are rivers of forgiveness to cleanse the soul from sin. There are healing waters flowing to heal the wounds within. There's a light of pure redemption to lead the way home and it's here yes it's here Lord it's here before your throne yes it's here yes it's here Lord, it's here before your throne.